You're listening to a podcast by Lance Lambert Ministries. For more information on this ministry, visit lancelambert.org. In this episode, Lance shares three essentials that are needed in the service of God. Let's listen. If you will turn to Luke, the Gospel according to Luke, and chapter 24, the last chapter of Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, I would like to bring a word that I believe the Lord has given me. I, I have called I have called it, it was as I was reading it in Philip's, a version uh, in modern English, the New Testament in modern English, as I was reading it through last night, um, three little phrases gripped me. I must say, of course it's probably just my own personal opinion, but I must say that I do, I much prefer Philip's version to the New English. I find it more alive, more gripping, more vital. And um, I must say that as I was reading through these two chapters, 23 and 24, in chapter 24, three phrases uh, took hold of me. And I could not but help feel that here was a word from God to be shared uh, with us all. I have called it three essentials in serving God. Because this week we, uh, we commence a two-week course um, on service, on the practical aspects of service. We shall, of course, be speaking a little bit, too, about the uh, heart of the matter, spiritual character. But I want just to bring three, what I, I believe in this chapter we have, three essentials in the service of God. Now I'm going to read to you a portion because I hadn't really so much to say. I'm just going to underline a phrase and then say a little bit about it. But I'm going to read a bit. I'm going to read to you in Philip's version, chapter 24, from from verse 1. But at the first signs of dawn on the first day of the week, they, that is the women, went to the tomb, taking with them the aromatic spices they had prepared. They discovered that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb, but on going inside, the body of the Lord Jesus was not to be found. While they were still puzzling over this, two men suddenly stood at their elbow, dressed in dazzling light. The women were terribly frightened, and turned their eyes away and looked at the ground. But the two men spoke to them. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember what he said to you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and must be crucified and must rise again on the third day. Then they did remember what he had said, and they turned their backs on the tomb and went and told all this to the eleven uh, to the eleven and the others who were with them. It was Mary of Magdala, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, 
and their companions who made this report to the apostles, but it struck them as sheer imagination, and they did not believe the women. Only Peter got up and ran to the tomb. He stooped down and saw the linen clothes lying there all by themselves, and he went home wondering at what had happened. Here's the phrase, they turned, it's in verse 8, they turned their backs on the tomb. That absolutely arrested me. They turned their backs on the tomb. The first essential in service, in the service of God, is clear-cut determination. Clear-cut determination. They turned their backs on the tomb. The idea here in the word, and I believe this is quite faithful uh, to the original, is that they, they deliberately turned away from the tomb and went straight back to the other disciples. I have called it determination. Determination, because I think that's summed up in the words, they turned their back, backs on the tomb. There's a picture of determination. The tomb and all that it represented of defeat, of failure, of disillusionment, of unhappiness, of misery, of emptiness, of vacuum. They, they turned their backs on it. For them it was a closed chapter. The fruits of Christ's work on the cross was to be the theme of their preaching. But they turned their back on what that tomb had represented to them. You see, there was such a danger that they would have had a dead Christ. They were so enamored of the Lord. And they were going to um, and put those aromatic spices upon the body again. They were going to, they were going, as it were, to, to embrace once more the dead body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know there are many, many Christians who have a dead Christ. They've been truly saved, but they have a dead Christ. He is a figure only found on the, in the pages of this book. He is a, a person that is preached about, but to speak of him in a living way, in an intimate way, in a personal way, is foreign to such people. They know the Lord in that they have met with a risen Christ and have been saved. But he is forever in the realm of books and must always come to them second hand. They are always enthralled when they listen to a person's testimony. Hear, for instance, something exciting. We flock to hear Gladys Aylwood. We, we love to listen to Mary Reese. We love to read about Mary Slessor and Hudson Taylor and Adoniram Judson of Burma and all these others. We, we're thrilled about it all and we talk about it. And works of faith. Well, they excite us no end. I know people who will take away George Miller's life and study it and will read his, or his little diary, the three volumes of his diary, they'll read it carefully. But as for putting into practice what they get so excited about, that's all together in another sphere. It's wonderful to read about it. It's exciting to hear that there are people who, uh, who know a Christ like that, but, um, you know, it is a little bit extreme. 
form. A little bit perhaps strange. Uh, it always reminds me of folk who will listen to someone in the pulpit and will say, wasn't that marvellous? But if old Mrs. So-and-so was suddenly to start really get to get getting to know the Lord like that and was to start talking about the Lord like that, that same person would say, there's something peculiar about her. I mean, it's just not done uh, to talk about the Lord like that. In the pulpit, it's all right, as long as we don't have it every Sunday, it's all right to have someone in the pulpit now and again who's got an extraordinary story to tell. It encourages our faith. It helps us to go on, but to find that every Christian could have such an experience, that must of necessity be eccentric. It's off, uh, it's not balanced. But you see, I love the way it's put here. They turn their backs on the tomb. It was no, they weren't going to worship anymore a dead Christ. They weren't going to talk about a dead Christ. For them now, they turn their backs on the tomb and they turn their face toward a living Christ. Now it's most beautifully put in the other Gospels because you see, you remember the, the Mary was with the other two when they went in and they ran back after having seen the angels, Mary also saw, and I had never quite understood how she didn't recognize the Lord Jesus. But Phillips again gives us a little clue. It says when she was fully turned round. You see, the Lord was behind. She saw the figure there. She thought it was the gardener in her grief. And she said to him, where have you put him? Just tell me. I'll go. I'll get the body. I'll take it away. And all he said was, Mary. And it says when she was fully, she, when she was fully turned, she said, Master. You see, uh, she was looking at the two. But when she turned, she found behind her the risen Christ. Now, you know, in the service of the Lord, we need clear-cut determination. Absolutely clear-cut determination. Clear-cut well, I think, again, it's in this thing, not only determination, they turn their backs, their backs on the tomb. That speaks of determination. Clear-cut, they turn their backs on the tomb. There's something absolutely clear-cut about this. They weren't going to play with it. They weren't going to compromise with it. They, they, had, they believed what they said. Now, the women were the first to believe, not the men. The women were the first to believe. Mm. It says quite clearly, then they did remember what he had said. Now, isn't that wonderful? You see, we all know it up here. But we, although we know he's alive and risen and we can walk with him and know him and talk with him as our hymns say, yet, somehow or another, we are bound to the tomb. We're bound to just that empty tomb and we're all the time going back there. I've got a little bit more to say about that in just one minute. But you see, uh, um, you see, it is they remember what he had said and they turn their backs on the tomb. Isn't that wonderful? Now, what is this tomb? 
It's the place of death. It's the place of defeat. For them, it was the place of frustration. It was the place of failure. It was the place of dissolution. That's what the tomb meant for them. It was the end. Now, dear child of God, although few of us will admit it, in all our lives there is a tomb. And there is a place of frustration, a place of disillusionment, a place often of disappointment, a place of defeat and failure. The devil's objective is to forever bind us to that tomb. To get us spending our time with aromatic spices, carefully looking after the two, watching over what belongs to the past, bound and fettered to ourselves. So simple, but in every life, it's there. It's there. You know, uh, we can look at it another way. We can say the tomb represents us crucified and buried. And there's nothing more wonderful when you've seen it with the eye of the heart. Nothing more wonderful to see oneself crucified with Christ and buried. But, if you stop there, your life's going to be negative and colorless and very humble and very modest and always sitting at the back and never taking part and yet never really getting where God wants us to get out of the tomb into the risen life of Christ. You know, we, we can see what the cross is, and yet somehow or another, we can, we can stop with the tomb. Stop with the tomb. And we can, we can somehow, our spiritual life can come to a halt at the point where we were buried with Christ. Let me put it another way. Some of us are so bound to our old men, our old natures, our old life, all that is old about us, that all the time we are, we are, we are as if we're going back to what we are. We do not seem to be able to cut the cord that binds us to our self-life. And so we must continually go back to the tomb to view ourselves dead. We have to go back and just see, you know, and our, and our point all the time is, oh, our, we can't do it, our inability, the impossibility of it all, how, how, how failing I am. God doesn't want us to sing continually eulogies over ourselves. He doesn't want us to weep over our misery, uh, over our failure. He doesn't want us to hug our past. God never expected any single person in this room to be anything else but a failure. Now if only we could just take it. 
God never expected anyone in this room to be anything else but a failure. What a wonderful thing that was. That is. Isn't it wonderful? Don't you think so? It's absolutely, it releases us. It frees us like birds from a cage. Suddenly we know the Lord knew I was going to be a failure. He doesn't expect me to be anything else but a failure. I shall always be a failure. If I think God expects anything else of me than failing, then sooner or later I shall be bound to the tomb. Because it is the very nature of our life, the very nature of our old life, of the old man, to fail. When it comes to the things of God, he is abject, miserable, vacuous failure. That's all. There's not enough that we can say about the old man in that vein. He is impossible. Even when he is at his most noble, and when he is at his, at, at his most gifted, when it comes to the service of God, he is an abject failure. God doesn't want our great gifts and our great talents. They do a lot of, they often cause a lot of trouble in the service of God. That's why I've said clear-cut determination. The first thing God must do with us is break us up. That's a very costly business. Now that means the two. We have to be broken up. God took Moses. Here was a noble man. Here was a gifted man. Here was a man of natural character, of natural strength and forcefulness. And you know what he did when he saw that man wrestling uh, with a Hebrew, that Egyptian? He slew him because he believed he was the chosen leader of the people of God. But the Lord had other ideas for Moses. He took him into the backside of the desert and left him there for 40 years looking after sheep. And after 40 years with the sheep, Moses was a very different man. I don't know whether the desert had got into Moses or what it was, but he was a very different man. When, when the Lord appears to Moses, Moses now, instead of saying, I'll go, he says instead, Lord, I can't speak. And the only way, and it may shock some, but the only way the Lord could get Moses into his service was by a trick. He said to Moses, do you ever believe me the Lord indulges in tricks? The Lord said to Moses, all right, Moses, all right, take Eva. Take Eva. He'll speak for you, Moses. And that was the only way that the Lord got Moses into his service. And do you know that Aaron never spoke? That's the funny thing. Moses did all the speaking. Aaron never spoke. But the Lord got Moses into his service by a trick. He said, all right, Moses, all right, all right, all right. You can't speak, you can't speak. I believe what the Lord was saying, as it were, to the angel, he was saying, now look at that. Just look at that. There's a bit of successful work. You see? He doesn't even think he can speak now. All right, then Moses, it's no good saying he can, because he really doesn't believe he can. I'll say to him, take Aaron, take Aaron. So Moses entered into the real service of God. And of course, once he was there, he depended on the Lord and he found he could speak. But it was in dependence upon the Lord. Now you see, there was a tomb in Moses' experience. There was the desert for 40 years. It was a tomb. And you know, there came a day when Moses had to turn his back on the tomb. He had to leave that. 
and go forward knowing that he was a failure, knowing that he couldn't do anything, he had to go forward. We need clear-cut determination to turn our backs on the tomb and face a risen Christ. If we want to serve the Lord, then this is one of the most essential things we've got to learn. We've got to cut the cord with the past, with what we are. Let me say it again. God never expected any single person in this room to be anything else but an abject failure in his service. So, there you are. Relax. Just relax. That's all. Relax. You're a failure? All right, you're a failure. But that doesn't mean that you can make that an excuse for not serving God. God knows you're a failure. He doesn't expect you to be anything else but a failure. I remember the relief that, it ca that came to me when I, when I first heard that, that God never expected me to be anything else but a failure. I hardly like to confess anything to the Lord because I always thought that he thought so highly. And of one and, and was, was hoping such big things of one that one almost sort of crept into his presence afraid every night to say anything too much and just a kind of vague subconscious idea that perhaps the Lord hadn't seen uh, that failure and witness and that there and so on the Lord doesn't expect anything else but he does expect this he expects you to remember what he has said and to turn your back on the tomb that's all it needs clear cut determination on your part turn your back on the tomb and face a risen Christ and in the next passage we cannot read it all although I'd love to read it all uh, from verse 18 um, you know it's the story of the walk to Emmaus they stopped their faces drawn with misery and the one called Cleopas replied, you must be the only stranger in Jerusalem who hasn't heard all the things that have happened here recently. What things, asked Jesus. Oh, all about Jesus from Nazareth. There was a man, a prophet strong in what he did and what he said, in God's eyes as well as the people's. Haven't you heard how our chief priests and rulers handed him over for execution and had him crucified? But we were hoping he was the one who was to come and to set Israel free. Yes. And as if that was not enough, it's getting on for three days since all this happened, and some of our women folk have disturbed us profoundly. For they went to the tomb at dawn, and then when they couldn't find his body, they said that they'd had a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of our people went straight off to the tomb and found things just as the, as the women had described them, but they didn't see him. Then he himself spoke to them. Aren't you failing to understand and slow to believe in all that the prophets have said? Was it not inevitable that Christ should suffer like that and so find his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them everything in the scriptures that referred to himself. They were by now approaching the village to which they were going. He gave the impression that he meant to go on further. That's beautiful. But they stopped him with the words, Do stay with us. It's nearly evening, and soon the day will be over. So he went indoors to stay with them. Then it happened. While he was sitting at table with them, he took the loaf, gave thanks, broke it, and passed it to them. Their eyes opened wide, and they knew him. But he vanished from their sight. 
Then they said to each other, weren't our hearts glowing while he was with us on the road and when he made the scriptures so plain to us? And they got to their feet without delay and turned back to Jerusalem. Now, the little phrase that gripped me, I don't know whether it's scripture as I've read it, was this one, then it happened. Then it happened. Verse 30. Do stay with us, they said. It's nearly evening and soon the day will be over. So he went indoors to stay with them. Then it happened. While he was sitting at table with them, he took the loaf, gave thanks, broke it and passed it to them. Their eyes opened wide and they knew him. The second essential in the service of God is spiritual revelation. Spiritual revelation. Oh, what a need there is of spiritual revelation. Not just knowledge up here, but something revealed to the heart and mind by the Spirit of God. They had walked with Christ. They had talked with Christ. They had heard Christ's words. They had seen Christ's work. And still, it hadn't got into the heart. My dear friend, you and I, we can, we can know so much about Christ. We can know so much about the book. We can know so much about doctrine. We can be almost a tome of theology on legs. And yet, and yet, in spite of the fact that we know so much, and we can even preach so much, we could have seen Christ working. We can have heard him speak. And yet, unless it is spiritually revealed, it never gets into the heart. Never. How many times many of us have read, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And yet we don't really know what it means. It's never been revealed. How many times we've read about power from on high that we might be witnesses unto him, but it's never been revealed to us, so we're not living in the good of it. We've read so many times, abide in me and I in you, and it has never been revealed to us, so that we're not really in the good of it. We know it up here, but not here. Isn't it lovely, those little words then? Then it happened. You mustn't be afraid of knowledge, as if knowledge in itself is wrong. God gave us minds. He gave us intelligence. He gave us the book. We've got to study. We must study in reliance upon the Holy Spirit. But if we're going on with the law, there will always be times when it can be written. Then it happened. Sometime, not only once, many times in our lives, we have to say, then it happened. And when we look back, we say, were, were our hearts not glowing when he spoke with us earlier? I thought there was something, but then it happened. And do you know that in one single minute second or two of time, something can be revealed to a person that they've spent their lives studying and in that flash 
so great is our eternal thing, so great is the ever-present being of God, that in one single moment he can open our eyes and what we've studied for years gets into the heart. We suddenly see. And when we do see, we're staggered and overwhelmed. We just fall back. We just fall back. I know the day I first saw what the church was, it was walking down by the river here at the Thames, wrestling with a phrase of a book that I'd written, which I got very annoyed with. Um, the books just said, the church is Christ. And I shut the book and said, I won't read any more of that rubbish. Uh, because I said, any Christian, any Christian knows that the church isn't Christ. The church is the body, Christ is the head. But that morning, I had read in 1 Corinthians 12, the little phrase, and as the body has many members, but is one, so also is Christ. And I thought, just wait. That says what that book was saying yesterday. And I studied, and I looked it up in the different versions to see, because I was sure the version I was reading must be wrong. But it wasn't wrong. Then I had a little argument with the Lord. I, I thought there must be something wrong. Here, there's the evidence that a mistake has been made in God's word. Uh, because the body can't be Christ. How can it be Christ? I was walking along, just, uh, I wasn't at work then at all. And I was walking along by the River Thames, just with this mind. Then suddenly, in a flash, it came to me, as if a voice suddenly said, But Lance, is your head only Lance Lambert? Or your body? And I saw it in a of course, Lance Lambert is head and body. Of course. So God gives the name Christ to head and body. We are all part of Christ. We are abiding in him and he in us. Isn't that wonderful? We are partakers of the divine nature. We have become members of Christ. Now, when that happens, it's a single flash. But in that flash, you see what for years you have only studied or read. In one flash, doesn't that doesn't that happen with all? Oh, in service, in the service of God, we've got to really spiritually see these things. We need spiritual revelation concerning the cross. We need spiritual revelation concerning Pentecost. We need spiritual revelation concerning the church. We need these things to be revealed to us. In um, verse uh, 40, uh, verse 47, I think it is, 48, the Lord says, you are eyewitnesses. Now, of course, we are not eyewitnesses in the way that they were eyewitnesses. They actually saw the risen body of the Lord Jesus. But you know, it is true, we are still witnesses. We are eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus in a spiritual way. We can proclaim we've met with a risen Christ. A, a risen Christ has met with us. We are witnesses. And this is surely one of the essentials in service. What is it to serve the Lord? It is to be a witness to him, to his character, to his person, to his work, to his purpose, to his glory, to everything to do with the Lord Jesus. This takes in everything. It takes in evangelism. It takes in teaching ministry. It takes in pastoral work. It takes in everything. We are witnesses. The best way I can help you, the best way you can help me, is by sharing what you know of Christ. We all know what it is to suffer under people who tell us from up here. They say, well, of course, you should do so and so and so and so and so and so. It says so in the Word. 
And you know, it doesn't really help us. But when someone speaks from the heart, we know it, don't we? When they are witnesses of Christ, and from the heart they share with us what they have learned and experienced and seen of him, then it is still the word of God. But it is from a heart that is in a living relationship with the living word all the difference in the world. So this is an essential again in service. We may be witnesses. And lastly, in the last part, I won't read all of it, um, but um, just verse 48 and 49, when the Lord Jesus appeared to them all in that upper room, he said this, you are eyewitnesses of these things. Now I hand over to you the command or commission of my father. Stay in the city then until you are clothed with power from on high. The third thing that gripped me was this phrase, clothed with power from on high. Clothed with power from on high. The first essential Clear-cut determination, turn our backs on the tomb, face the risen Christ. The second, spiritual revelation, then it happened. The third thing, dynamic means, dynamic means, clothed with power from on high. God provides dynamic means for his service. Why, there's so much against us. There's so much against us. You see, the Christian life is basically a supernatural life. We must have supernatural resources for a supernatural life. The service of God is a supernatural service. It can't just be a man in the flesh cannot serve God. That's why Paul said in one place, I serve the Lord in my spirit. We cannot serve the Lord with our flesh life, with our old nature. No, not at all. But if we've gone to the tomb and we've said goodbye to the tomb, we've turned our back on it, and if God has revealed to us something of the nature of what is ours in Christ, we need the dynamic means to go forward. To see that you've been crucified with Christ and buried with him, and even to see that you're raised with him is one thing, but you know you need dynamic means for God's service. Why? Because we have a dynamic enemy. That's why. The devil is no small, mangy little minion. The devil is a very big intelligence and power. He is, in one sense, a dynamic foe. Dynamic, yes, yes, he's not asleep. Not one of these sort of uh, half-awake foe. He is like a big business tycoon at his desk all the time. Off here, this, that. Or he's, he's, his aim is world supremacy. And his aim is to undo every child of God. And in so undoing, frustrate the purpose of God concerning Christ. Well, that's all right. We've got a terrible enemy. But don't let's be afraid. We have dynamic means to fight a dynamic foe. 
And greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Isn't that wonderful? We, are, we can be clothed with power from on high. This is the whole point. Supernatural service demands supernatural means. And the supernatural means are given to us. Now there are people who start to argue immediately you talk about being clothed with power from on high. They ask you, do you mean the baptism of the Spirit? And what do you mean? And so on. Well, all right, all right. Let's leave that for a moment. Let's leave that. You know, if I want to get from here to Brighton, I'm not going to argue about what, what is the most important part of a car, whether the wheels are more important than the steering wheel. I'm not going to argue. What I do want to know is, is the petrol in the tank? the most important because we need wheels and we need a steering wheel but we need petrol in the tank otherwise to sit down and have an argument about wheels and steering wheel is ridiculous the point is this my dear child of God if you have no power in your life no power to live the Christian life no power to serve the Lord no power to witness at home or in the office or out in the streets. No power to be holy. No power to be separate from self and from the world. No power to love. No power over a wicked tongue. No power over evil thoughts. If you and I have no power, let's not argue about the, uh, the science of the thing, the technical side of it, let's ask the Lord to clothe us with power from on high. That's what's needed. Dynamic means for his service. Well, here it is, given to us. He indeed gives us power, not only the Holy Spirit to dwell within, and from within to transform us into the very image of Christ. But power like clothes, like a robe that comes upon us in which, by which, we can serve the Lord. Do any of you feel naked when it comes to witnessing? That's just putting it into words. You feel naked. You feel somehow self-conscious, as if people are looking at you, as if you haven't got any clothes on. Uh, and so you can't really speak about Christ. You can't really witness to the Lord. Well, you need to be clothed with power from on high. It's there for us. It's not as if God's got to do something more. God has given it to us. Given. It's all ours. But oh, for eyes to be opened. Oh, for hearts to be opened. Oh, for a faith that will reach out to the Lord. Dynamic means. God's service needs dynamic means and praise him. He has provided dynamic means. The tragedy is that so few of us are availing ourselves of the dynamic means. Therefore, if we turn our backs on the two, if we have really seen to us has been granted spiritual revelation not just once of course but on increasing then we need power from on high 
that we may go forward with a risen Christ and do his will. Shall we pray? And dear Lord Jesus, we do pray together that thou wouldst bless thy word to us this morning and make us a people, Lord, who really seek thee fully and completely. How we need thee, Lord. How we need thee in every way. Oh, apply thy word to our hearts and grant, dear Lord, that we may go forward with thee. We ask it in thy name. Amen. May you turn your back on the tomb. May you know the deep, deep love of Jesus.